Hi, and welcome to Fido, an audio adventure into fiction, folklore, and fairy tales. I'm John, your host, and thanks for dropping in. We're well underway on our little journey through time, and I hope you enjoyed the first episode. By my count, we should be finishing this story toward the end of October, just in time for Halloween, and I plan on something spooky for the October 30th episode. As we continue on, I think it's interesting to pay attention to Wells' speculations about the future. He was fond of predictions about where society, technology, and science were headed, and in many cases he was spot on. I may have mentioned it before, but he all but named Wikipedia in 1937, and that's just one of a long list of things he imagined with stunning accuracy. Of course, he hasn't predicted everything correctly, at least not yet. In Wells's day, the cities of the world were already beginning to explode outward and upward, and so I think some of that aspect of his world is seen played out in these next two chapters. Let's get on with the story. And now, as published in 1895 by H.G. Wells, The Time Machine, Chapters 3 and 4. I think that at the time, none of us quite believed in the time machine. The fact is, the time traveler was one of those men who are too clever to be believed. You never felt that you saw all round him. You always suspected some subtle reserve, some ingenuity and ambush behind his lucid frankness. Had Philby shown the model and explained the matter in the time traveler's words, we should have shown him far less skepticism, for we should have perceived his motives. A pork butcher could understand Philby. But the time traveler had more than a touch of whim among his elements, and we distrusted him. Things that would have made the fame of a less clever man seemed tricks in his hands. It is a mistake to do things too easily. The serious people who took him seriously never felt quite sure of his deportment. They were somehow aware that trusting their reputations for judgment with him was like furnishing a nursery with eggshell china. So I don't think any of us said very much about time traveling in the interval between that Thursday and the next, though its odd potentialities ran, no doubt, in most of our minds. Its plausibility, that is, its practical incredibleness, the curious possibilities of anachronism and of utter confusion it suggested. For my own part, I was particularly preoccupied with the trick of the model. That I remember discussing with the medical man whom I met on Friday at the Linnean. He said he had seen a similar thing at Tübingen, and laid considerable stress on the blowing out of the candle, but how the trick was done he could not explain. The next Thursday I went again to Richmond. I suppose I was one of the time traveler's most constant guests, and arriving late found four or five men already assembled in his drawing-room. The medical man was standing before the fire with a sheet of paper in one hand and his watch in the other. I looked round for the time traveler, and— "'It's half-past seven now,' said the medical man. "'I suppose we'd better have dinner.' "'Where's?' said I, naming our host. "'You've just come? It's rather odd. He's unavoidably detained. He asks me in this note to lead off with dinner at seven if he's not back. Says he'll explain when he comes.' "'It seems a pity to let the dinner spoil,' said the editor of a well-known daily paper, and thereupon the doctor rang the bell." The psychologist was the only person besides the doctor and myself who had attended the previous dinner. 
The other men were Blank, the editor aforementioned, a certain journalist, and another, a quiet, shy man with a beard, whom I didn't know, and who, as far as my observation went, never opened his mouth all the evening. There was some speculation at the dinner table about the time traveler's absence, and I suggested time traveling in a half jocular spirit. The editor wanted that explained to him, and the psychologist volunteered a wooden account of the ingenious paradox and trick we had witnessed that day week. He was in the midst of his exposition when the door from the corridor opened slowly and without noise. I was facing the door and saw it first. Hello, I said. At last! And the door opened wider, and the time traveler stood before us. I gave a cry of surprise. "'Good heavens, man, what's the matter?' cried the medical man who saw him next, and the whole tableful turned towards the door. He was in an amazing plight. His coat was dusty and dirty, and smeared with green down the sleeves, his hair disordered, and, as it seemed to me, grayer, either with dust and dirt or because its color had actually faded. His face was ghastly pale. His chin had a brown cut on it, a cut half-heeled. His expression was haggard and drawn, as if by intense suffering. For a moment he hesitated in the doorway, as if he had been dazzled by the light. Then he came into the room. He walked with just such a limp as I have seen in footsore tramps. We stared at him in silence, expecting him to speak. He said not a word, but came painfully to the table and made a motion towards the wine. The editor filled a glass of champagne and pushed it towards him. He drained it, and it seemed to do him good, for he looked round the table, and the ghost of his old smile flickered across his face. "'What on earth have you been up to, man?' said the doctor. The time-traveller did not seem to hear. "'Don't let me disturb you,' he said, with a certain faltering articulation. "'I'm all right.' He stopped, held out his glass for more, and took it off at a draught. "'That's good,' he said. His eyes grew brighter, and a faint colour came into his cheeks. His glance flickered over our faces with a certain dull approval, and then went round the warm and comfortable room. Then he spoke again, still, as it were, feeling his way among his words. "'I'm going to wash and dress, and then I'll come down and explain things. Save me some of that mutton. I'm starving for a bit of meat.' He looked across at the editor, who was a rare visitor, and hoped he was all right. The editor began a question. "'Tell you presently,' said the time-traveller. "'I'm funny. Be all right in a minute.' He put down his glass and walked towards the staircase door. Again I remarked his lameness and the soft padding sound of his footfall, and standing up in my place I saw his feet as he went out. He had nothing on them but a pair of tattered, blood-stained socks. Then the door closed upon him. I had half a mind to follow till I remembered how he detested any fuss about himself. For a minute, perhaps, my mind was wool-gathering. Then, "'Remarkable behavior of an eminent scientist,' I heard the editor say, thinking after his want in headlines. And this brought my attention back to the bright dinner-table. "'What's the game?' said the journalist. "'Has he been doing the amateur cadger? I don't follow.' I met the eye of the psychologist and read my own interpretation in his face. I thought of the time-traveler limping painfully upstairs. I don't think anyone else had noticed his lameness. The first to recover completely from this surprise was the medical man, who rang the bell. The time-traveler hated to have servants waiting at dinner for a hot plate. At that, the editor turned to his knife and fork with a grunt, and the silent man followed suit. The dinner was resumed— Conversation was exclamatory for a little while with gaps of wonderment, and then the editor got fervent in his curiosity. 
Does our friend eke out his modest income with a crossing, or has he his Nebuchadnezzar phases? He inquired. I feel assured it's this business of the time machine, I said, and took up the psychologist's account of our previous meeting. The new guests were frankly incredulous. The editor raised objections. What was this time traveling? A man couldn't cover himself with dust by rolling in a paradox, could he? And then, as the idea came home to him, he resorted to caricature. Hadn't they any clothes brushes in the future? The journalist, too, would not believe at any price and joined the editor in the easy work of heaping ridicule on the whole thing. They were both the new kind of journalist, very joyous, irreverent young men. Our special correspondent in the day after tomorrow reports, the journalist was saying, or rather shouting, when the time traveler came back. He was dressed in ordinary evening clothes, and nothing save his haggard look remained of the change that had startled me. "'I say,' said the editor hilariously, "'these chaps here say you've been traveling into the middle of next week. Tell us all about little Roseberry, will you? What will you take for the lot?' The time-traveler came to the place reserved for him without a word. He smiled quietly in his old way. "'Where's my mutton?' he said. "'What a treat it is to stick a fork into meat again.' "'Story!' cried the editor. "'Story be damned!' said the time-traveler. "'I want something to eat. I won't say a word until I get some peptone into my arteries. Thanks, and the salt.' "'One word,' said I. "'Have you been time-traveling?' "'Yes,' said the time-traveler, with his mouth full, nodding his head. "'I'd give a shilling a line for a verbatim note,' said the editor. The time-traveler pushed his glass toward the silent man and rang it with his fingernail, at which the silent man, who had been staring at his face, started convulsively and poured him wine. The rest of the dinner was uncomfortable. For my own part, sudden questions kept on rising to my lips, and I dare say it was the same with the others. The journalist tried to relieve the tension by telling anecdotes of Hetty Potter— the time-traveler devoted his attention to his dinner, and displayed the appetite of a tramp. The medical man smoked a cigarette and watched the time-traveler through his eyelashes. The silent man seemed even more clumsy than usual, and drank champagne with regularity and determination out of sheer nervousness. At the last, the time-traveler pushed his plate away and looked round us. "'I suppose I must apologize,' he said. "'I was simply starving. I've had a most amazing time.' He reached out his hand for a cigar and cut the end. But come into the smoking-room. It's too long a story to tell over greasy plates. And ringing the bell in passing, he led the way into the adjoining room. "'You have told Blank and Dash and Chose about the machine,' he said to me, leaning back in his easy-chair and naming the three new guests. "'But the thing's a mere paradox,' said the editor. "'I can't argue tonight. I don't mind telling you the story, but I can't argue. I will,' he went on, tell you the story of what has happened to me, if you like, but you must refrain from interruptions. I want to tell it. Badly. Most of it will sound like lying. So be it. It's true, every word of it, all the same. I was in my laboratory at four o'clock, and since then I've lived eight days, such days as no human being ever lived before. I'm nearly worn out, but I shan't sleep until I've told this thing over to you. Then I shall go to bed, but no interruptions. Is it agreed? Agreed, said the editor, and the rest of us echoed, agreed. And with that, the time-traveler began his story as I have set it forth. He sat back in his chair at first and spoke like a weary man. Afterwards, he got more animated. In writing it down, I feel with only too much keenness the inadequacy of pen and ink, and, above all, my own inadequacy to express its quality— you read, I will suppose, attentively enough, 
but you cannot see the speaker's white, sincere face in the bright circle of the little lamp, nor hear the intonation of his voice. You cannot know how his expression followed the turns of the story. Most of us hearers were in shadow, for the candles in the smoking-room had not been lighted, and only the face of the journalist and the legs of the silent man from the knees downward were illuminated. At first we glanced now and again at each other— after a time we ceased to do that, and looked only at the time-traveller's face. I told some of you last Thursday of the principles of the time-machine, and showed you the actual thing itself incomplete in the workshop. There it is now, a little travel-worn, truly, and one of the ivory bars is cracked, and a brass rail bent, but the rest of it's sound enough. I expected to finish it on Friday, but on Friday, when the putting together was nearly done, I found that one of the nickel bars was exactly one inch too short, and this I had to get remade, so that the thing was not complete until this morning. It was at ten o'clock today that the first of all time machines began its career. I gave it a last tap, tried all the screws again, put one more drop of oil on the quartz rod, and sat myself into the saddle. I suppose a suicide who holds a pistol to his skull feels much the same wonder at what will come next as I felt then. I took the starting lever in one hand and the stopping one in the other, pressed the first and almost immediately the second. I seemed to reel. I felt a nightmare sensation of falling, and, looking round, I saw the laboratory exactly as before. Had anything happened? For a moment I suspected that my intellect had tricked me. Then I noted the clock. A moment before, as it seemed, it had stood at a minute or so past ten. Now it was nearly half past three. I drew a breath, set my teeth, gripped the starting lever with both hands, and went off with a thud. The laboratory got hazy and went dark. Mrs. Watchett came in and walked, apparently without seeing me, towards the garden door. I suppose it took her a minute or so to traverse the place, but to me she seemed to shoot across the room like a rocket— I pressed the lever over to its extreme position. The night came like the turning out of a lamp, and in another moment came tomorrow. The laboratory grew faint and hazy, then fainter and even fainter. Tomorrow night came black, then day again, night again, day again, faster and faster still. An eddying murmur filled my ears, and a strange, dumb confusedness descended on my mind. I am afraid I cannot convey the peculiar sensations of time-traveling. They are excessively unpleasant. There is a feeling exactly like that one has upon a switchback, of a helpless headlong motion. I felt the same horrible anticipation, too, of an imminent smash. As I put on pace, night followed day like the flapping of a black wing. The dim suggestion of the laboratory seemed presently to fall away from me, and I saw the sun hopping swiftly across the sky, leaping it every minute, and every minute marking a day. I supposed the laboratory had been destroyed and I had come into the open air. I had a dim impression of scaffolding, but I was already going too fast to be conscious of any moving things. The slowest snail that ever crawled dashed by too fast for me. The twinkling succession of darkness and light was excessively painful to the eye. Then, in the intermittent darknesses, I saw the moon spinning swiftly through her quarters from new to full, and had a faint glimpse of the circling stars. Presently, as I went on, still gaining velocity, the palpitation of night and day merged into one continuous grayness. 
The sky took on a wonderful deepness of blue, a splendid luminous color like that of early twilight. The jerking sun became a streak of fire, a brilliant arch in space, the moon a fainter fluctuating band, and I could see nothing of the stars, save now and then a brighter circle flickering in the blue. The landscape was misty and vague. I was still on the hillside upon which the house now stands, and the shoulder rose above me gray and dim. I saw trees growing and changing like puffs of vapor, now brown, now green, they grew, spread, shivered, and passed away. I saw huge buildings rise up faint and fair, and pass like dreams. The whole surface of the earth seemed to change, melting and flowing under my eyes. The little hands upon the dials that registered my speed raced round faster and faster. Presently I noted that the sun-belt swayed up and down from solstice to solstice in a minute or less, and that consequently my pace was over a year a minute, and minute by minute the white snow flashed across the world and vanished, and was followed by the bright, brief green of spring. The unpleasant sensations of the start were less poignant now. They merged at last into a kind of hysterical exhilaration— I remarked, indeed, a clumsy swaying of the machine for which I was unable to account. But my mind was too confused to attend it, so with a kind of madness growing upon me, I flung myself into futurity. At first I scarce thought of stopping, scarce thought of anything but these new sensations, but presently a fresh series of impressions grew up in my mind, a certain curiosity and therewith a certain dread, until at last they took complete possession of me— what strange developments of humanity, what wonderful advances upon our rudimentary civilization, I thought, might not appear when I came to look nearly into the dim, elusive world that raced and fluctuated before my eyes. I saw great and splendid architecture rising about me, more massive than any buildings of our own time, and yet, as it seemed, built of glimmer and mist. I saw a richer green flow up the hillside and remain there without any wintry intermission. Even through the veil of my confusion, the earth seemed very fair, and so my mind came round to the business of stopping. The peculiar risk lay in the possibility of my finding some substance in the space which I, or the machine, occupied. So long as I travelled at a high velocity through time, this scarcely mattered. I was, so to speak, attenuated— was slipping like a vapor through the interstices of intervening substances. But to come to a stop involved the jamming of myself, molecule by molecule, into whatever lay in my way, meant bringing my atoms into such intimate contact with those of the obstacle that a profound chemical reaction, possibly a far-reaching explosion, would result, and blow myself and my apparatus out of all possible dimensions into the unknown." This possibility had occurred to me again and again while I was making the machine, but then I had cheerfully accepted it as an unavoidable risk, one of the risks a man has got to take. Now the risk was inevitable, I no longer saw it in the same cheerful light. The fact is that, insensibly, the absolute strangeness of everything, the sickly jarring and swaying of the machine, above all, the feeling of prolonged falling, had absolutely upset my nerves." I told myself that I could never stop, and with a gust of petulance I resolved to stop forthwith. Like an impatient fool, I lugged over the lever, and incontinently the thing went reeling over, and I was flung headlong through the air. There was the sound of a clap of thunder in my ears. 
I may have been stunned for a moment. A pitiless hail was hissing round me, and I was sitting on soft turf in front of the overset machine. Everything still seemed grey, but presently I remarked that the confusion in my ears was gone. I looked round me. I was on what seemed to be a little lawn in a garden, surrounded by rhododendron bushes, and I noticed that their mauve and purple blossoms were dropping in a shower under the beating of the hailstones. The rebounding, dancing hail hung in a little cloud over the machine and drove along the ground like smoke. In a moment I was wet to the skin. "'Fine hospitality,' said I, to a man who has traveled innumerable years to see you. Presently I thought what a fool I was to get wet. I stood up and looked around me. A colossal figure, carved apparently in some white stone, loomed indistinctly beyond the rhododendrons through the hazy downpour, but all else of the world was invisible.' My sensations would be hard to describe. As the columns of hail grew thinner, I saw the white figure more distinctly. It was very large, for a silver birch tree touched its shoulder. It was of white marble, in shape something like a winged sphinx. But the wings, instead of being carried vertically at the sides, were spread so that it seemed to hover. The pedestal, it appeared to me, was of bronze, and was thick with verdigris. It chanced that the face was towards me. The sightless eyes seemed to watch me. There was the faint shadow of a smile on the lips. It was greatly weather-worn, and that imparted an unpleasant suggestion of disease. I stood looking at it for a little space, half a minute perhaps, or half an hour. It seemed to advance and to recede as the hail drove before it denser or thinner. At last I tore my eyes from it for a moment and saw that the hail curtain had worn threadbare— and that the sky was lightening with the promise of the sun. I looked up again at the crouching white shape, and the full temerity of my voyage came suddenly upon me. What might appear when that hazy curtain was altogether withdrawn? What might not have happened to men? What if cruelty had grown into a common passion? What if in this interval the race had lost its manliness, and had developed into something inhuman, unsympathetic, and overwhelmingly powerful— I might seem some old-world savage animal, only the more dreadful and disgusting for our common likeness, a foul creature to be incontinently slain. Already I saw other vast shapes, huge buildings with intricate parapets and tall columns, with a wooded hillside dimly creeping in upon me through the lessening storm. I was seized with a panic fear. I turned frantically to the time machine and strove hard to readjust it. As I did so, the shafts of the sun smote through the thunderstorm. The gray downpour was swept aside and vanished like the trailing garments of a ghost. Above me, in the intense blue of the summer sky, some faint brown shreds of cloud whirled into nothingness. The great buildings about me stood out clear and distinct, shining with the wet of the thunderstorm, and picked out in white by the unmelted hailstones piled along their courses." I felt naked in a strange world. I felt as perhaps a bird may feel in the clear air, knowing the hawk wings above and will swoop. My fear grew to frenzy. I took a breathing space, set my teeth, and again grappled fiercely, wrist and knee, with the machine. It gave under my desperate onset and turned over. It struck my chin violently. One hand on the saddle, the other on the lever, I stood panting heavily in attitude to mount again. But with this recovery of a prompt retreat, my courage recovered. I looked more curiously and less fearfully at this world of the remote future. 
In a circular opening high up in the wall of the nearer house, I saw a group of figures clad in rich, soft robes. They had seen me, and their faces were directed towards me. Then I heard voices approaching me, coming through the bushes by the white sphinx were the heads and shoulders of men running. One of these emerged in a pathway leading straight to the little lawn upon which I stood with my machine. He was a slight creature, perhaps four feet high, clad in a purple tunic girdled at the waist with a leather belt. Sandals, or buskins, I could not clearly distinguish which, were on his feet. His legs were bare to the knees, and his head was bare. Noticing that, I noticed for the first time how warm the air was. He struck me as being a very beautiful and graceful creature, but indescribably frail. His flushed face reminded me of the more beautiful kind of consumptive, that hectic beauty of which we used to hear so much. At the sight of him, I suddenly regained confidence. I took my hands from the machine. If you're enjoying Fido, then you should definitely subscribe on your podcast platform of choice so you don't miss an episode. Make sure to rate and review Fido if you like what you're hearing. And share the show with your friends and family. Word of mouth is my best advertisement. Don't forget to leave me a comment or a question, and I might be able to read them on the air. I love hearing from my listeners. Head over to FidoPodcast.com for show links and merchandise. And if you're a true fan of the show, message me about the exclusive Fedork fan t-shirt. It's not available online, so if you want one, let me know. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Fido Podcast, or join the Fido Discord server. You can find the link in the show notes. And if you would like to support the show more directly, you can become a patron. I'm on Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. There's behind-the-scenes content, early access to upcoming episodes, merchandise discounts, and if you join, you'll get a personal handwritten thank you from me in the mail, as well as a Fido sticker. Also, you'll get a mention here on the show. That brings us to the end of episode 106. Watch for the next episode of Fido coming soon. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you once upon a next time. Fido is a member of the Pizza Rice Podcasting Collaborative. Check us out at pizzaricepodcast.com.